This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Natalia Estrada, setting in for Steve Thomas. Today's episode is going to be a bit different. Today's guest is Lilidar Fenze. He is the librarian for Eastern European and Eurasian Studies and the librarian for Latin American Studies at UC Berkeley. He's previously worked at the libraries at Princeton and at UCLA. This episode of the show is brought to you by Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing. Syndetics Unbound helps public and academic libraries enrich their catalogs and discovery systems with high-interest elements, including reader's advisory, cover images, summaries, author profiles, similar books, review, and much, much more. Synthetics Unbound encourages serendipitous discovery and higher collection usage and was awarded Platinum Distinction in the Library Works 2021 Modern Library Awards. To learn more about Synthetics Unbound, visit Synthetics.com. While there, be sure to visit the Synthetics Unbound blog for news and analysis, including a breakdown of libraries' top titles and other stories of interest to the library community. Again, that's Synthetics.com to learn more about today's sponsor, Synthetics Unbound. An audience warning. This episode contains some mention of violence and some other topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. I met Lilidar years ago while working in the UC Berkeley libraries, and there are a couple of things anyone that knows Lilidar will say about him. One, did you know Lilidar knows more than 15 languages? Two, and that he's fluent in about eight of them? Three, he is incredibly passionate about librarianship especially area studies librarianship. He shares that passion with any new library worker, including me. I sat down and talked to him about area studies, how he got into librarianship, some of the projects that he'd been working on. What does a day-to-day look like for you? So every day is unpredictable. You have worked at UC Berkeley, so our priorities can shift sometimes. But the basic goal for any librarian is to serve our end users. So who are our end users? Students, faculty, graduate, doctoral students, visiting scholars, etc. etc. So whenever the day changes suddenly without any previous warning, I still try to focus on things that might take care of our primary what they call it. Clientele, I don't like to use what they are not our clients, they are not our patrons, but they are the uh, Someone we are interested to deliver appropriate, verifiable, correct information that perhaps suits their information. Because we try and sometimes we try to tell them, okay, this might work for you, but they are not completely happy. Sometimes information does not exist or it exists it's in the disparate languages. I know your background because we worked together for quite some time, right. but I think the way that you got into librarianship helps frame your approach with our patrons and our researchers and whatnot. Can you talk about how you got into librarianship? Yes, yes, of course. I would like to recall my days at UCLA when I was a student and my first job as an immigrant was washing dishes. And most of the colleagues who worked with me around me spoke Spanish and I could not communicate with them. <laughs> and it was like, Keora so. So I don't know a few keywords. Then I realized that there's much to Spanish language. It's beautiful. It's complicated. It's nuanced like any other languages. 
And I decided to uh, say, okay, I want to know more about the world I don't know about. Because I came from the old world, from a traditional family in India. And it was important for me to realize that everywhere in the world, people uh, live differently. But our humanity combines us. So that's what brought me to the librarianship. And what will be the one way to get there? So I was looking for jobs and there was a job in the parking, like uh, other jobs. So my boss said to me, she was from Texas. And she was so supportive. I was very impressed with her level of support she gave. And I always had a good relationship with Texans. And she was like, no, 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 you're a good man. You should go and study. Why don't you do librarians? I said, are you trying to program my brains? Like, uh, no, because you're a mature student and you'll be very good at helping other students. Okay. So I started picking classes and then I came to UCLA and applied like everybody else. And American community colleges, for me, are the blessing. You know, sometimes people laugh at it. Oh, this is our community policy. Who cares? But no, they allowed me to transfer my credits because I could not afford. So I was lucky. And then I worked at Home Depot and people were very supportive. At Home Depot, they always insisted upon continuing education from their associates. So I had an overall good experience in my immigrant life. A lot of people don't go into librarianship the way that you did, where it's usually like, they love books or they had a good experience in their libraries and they wanted to do that as well. You had encouragement and you had people who supported you, which is super important. Also, the reference librarians, the first line of defense. And I'll tell you why. When I was washing dishes, I used to feel too depressed because I knew more than that. But that doesn't mean that the job was below me. But it was a job which paid my bills, covered my insurance expenses. So to escape the seemingly boring nature, because no job is boring. You make it boring sometimes. I used to go to UCLA's library. And since I studied in the Soviet Union, where they were still using card catalog, I didn't know how to use computers. And the first person who helped me was a Chinese-American librarian who was responsible for Latin American studies. And her name was Dora Lo. She was so gentle. She was so patient. I said, oh my God, I don't know how to use the computer. And I used to do that typing with two hands. So she said, learn typing for your success. So these are the people who motivated me. And she guided me and she said, why don't you work at a job in the library? Because you spoke Russian, you spoke Hindi. So, okay. That's the way I got into the library shop. So the credit goes to the librarians also on the reference desk. They matter to me, at least as a mature student. They matter to me. And also, not only did they see that, they also recognize that you take a lot of humanity to everyone around you, like you yourself as a person. Washing dishes is not an unskilled job. No job is an unskilled labor. But at the same time, you were taking all these things from washing dishes and trying to communicate with your coworkers and things like that and trying to get skills to apply to that and be able to have a better relationship. And I feel like that works very well for you in librarianship. Yes, and the co-workers were the best word because words play an integral role in expressing meaning. Now, if you take them out of context, then it becomes horrible scratch on your ears. But uh, if there are certain ways to say, and especially most of the colleagues who worked with me were either from Central America or from Mexico. So they were very generous to me and I didn't take it like as an offense. But it got me into trouble sometimes. So it's a lifelong preparation. It's a vocation for me. And colleagues like you 
who make me feel welcome. Many Americans, really, I will tell you, of course, like every university, you have some funny colleagues who will never accept you. That happens in every university. But 99.9% of colleagues were forthcoming, welcoming, and very warm. I cannot say anything bad about those experiences. Thank God. Or I don't know that. Yeah. Thank the providence. <laughs> and I think we should talk about the specific type of librarianship that you specialize in, which is area studies, international librarianship and whatnot. And it's a very important, but a little understood in some senses. Like, I don't think everybody has an actual image of what area studies librarianship looks like. What is area studies librarianship? So to be uh, put in the simple words, area studies focuses on a particular region of a globe and tries to understand it from the perspectives of print culture in that particular area, what kind of books are getting published, not necessarily just to collect books for the collection's sake, but to meet the information needs of our end user. So somebody asked me, how much of tequila is produced in Mexico? I need to know, because tequila is like a, a denomination of a certain region. If it's produced somewhere else, it becomes something different. I'm not going to talk about alcohol as a vice. There's a simple question, economic trade. And somebody comes to me, how many barrels of tequila gets exported? You need to know where it's made. What is it? It's, I don't drink, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't know what it is. So area studies uh, is the invention of our foreign policy. For example, when I was in Latin America and I asked a Brazilian colleague, are you a Latin American studies major? And they laughed at me. They said, what do I mean by Latin American studies major? I'm a Brazilian studies major, Brazilian literature, Brazilian aspects of sociology, for example. I was in India. I didn't know that I was a South Asian until I got to America because I always thought I'm Indian. That was my nation state, right? So area studies transcends slightly that model and makes it broader to understand regional specificities. And after the Second World War, United States realized that we need to re uh, redefine our space uh, in this world. And in order to define our space, first we need to understand with whom we are dealing. So, for example, after 9-11, everybody started studying Arabic because that was a hot topic. Now that Ukraine is going on, there's a lot of money coming into Ukrainian studies. So, you need to have long-term vision. Our nation is a very young nation as compared to many other nations. Uh, so, we don't hold necessarily grudges, but we try to understand how the world works. But I don't want just this to be a look at, like, area studies is important, getting these resources, because we want to know, essentially, the people who we're in conflict with. I think there's more to it. Yes. And I imagine that you see that there's more of an importance of area studies besides that. Uh, for me, because I was a dislocated person from my own childhood. So area studies acquired a special meaning. When you leave your country and go to another country, you have to adapt to the ways those people live, languages they speak, food they eat. But for me, it's not just defined by the political drives of the United States. It's also an integrated discipline. So why would you consider Brazilian modernism and compare it to, let's say, Iranian modernism? If somebody comes and asks me, oh, do you know The Blind Owl by Sadiq Hedayat? And if you don't know who Sadiq Hidayat was, then you're lost and how it's spelled. Or sometimes in the catalog, we see the mistakes like the righteous caliphs uh, of Islam. Uh, one of them is Abu Bakr. But person who doesn't know it, who is doing the cataloging, romanizes it as Baker, B-A-K-E-R, then you get the results for bakery. And then you go crazy. So this also means having 
knowledge of regional specificities. How Americans live, somebody asked me, oh, do they eat all McDonald's? Are, are you crazy? Or oh, all of them, do they watch soap operas like Santa Barbara? You cannot generalize about our country. No, the devil is in the details and area studies empowers you to understand those details to the best of your abilities. And if you don't know, you ask. Whenever people find out that I'm Colombian, usually the first thing they think of is like, oh, so did you benefit from Pablo Escobar? Things like that, or things related to the drug trade. Well, in fact, there's so much more to Colombia. You cannot just dismiss Colombia from those the types of understanding. Colombia is a long history. Its history is complicated and nuanced like every other country. They have multiple ethnicities like Afro-Colombians. But the first nations of Colombia, Colombia is huge, huge. It looks small on the map. So Colombia is not simple. That's important because it's selectors like you that help flesh out these images of these regions of the world. If you're doing it based without any knowledge of these regions of the world, you're going to have a very limited and, quite frankly, a very bigoted, dismissive collection to focus on these areas. It's selectors and librarians like you who do area studies that help give a fuller image, even for those who can't go to these regions. During our conversation, Lodar mentioned some of the items in the collection that contains racism, violence, abuse, trauma. And while for him, these are tough materials to deal with, he explains his approach this way. So, for example, uh, there was a law in Russia which allows men, if they strike a woman a couple of times, they don't get arrested or something like that. I'm not a legal expert. But then I started collecting materials on uh, female abuse, gender biases. This macho nature of being a man, supposedly, with a lot of power and abusing women. So it is reprehensible material sometimes. And there are different views to it. But as a librarian, you keep your emotions when you leave your home and come to work. Doesn't mean you don't feel that. Doesn't mean you don't have your personal opinions. But you need to still collect the materials. And I, I think this American code of ethics librarian code of ethics, you have to follow it. I try to be as neutral as I can. I try to fight my own implicit biases because all of us have them. But I believe strongly that we as librarians have a unique role in uh, implementing diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, and belonging. But besides that, decolonizing our collections. And that's a loaded word, right? Because somebody who is a uh, Conservative in the United States might take me very wrong. And there's no offense to anybody. But what I mean is that you have to represent all sides of human thought. I think, though, I wouldn't call that a neutral stance. You're taking the side of showing the humanity of different regions of the world and being active and reflecting that in your collection practices. Like, if you were being neutral, you would just let collection build on its own and not say anything. Um, but you are being deliberate in saying, like, I want more representation in Afro-Latino, you know, authors in my collection. I want more representation of unheard voices in Eastern Europe. That is a deliberate yeah. choice that I think only you can make. Yeah, because I think simply one thing I like is our administrators trust us. They know that we are the specialists in our field. So, for example, we have a colleague in Middle Eastern studies. He specializes in Middle Eastern studies. But since I do Armenian studies, we work together. 
because Armenian diaspora is also in the Middle East. And Turkey, uh, Anatolia, whole part of it was a home of historical Armenia, for example. So there are a lot of Armenians living, even after the genocide. Same with my colleague in Romance languages. Spain is like the mother country for the Latin America in the colonial sense, which I don't agree with that description, but they published not on Latin America, a critical librarianship. So I collected Deliberately, I collected because many civil war participants fled to Mexico, fled to Argentina, fled to Colombia to, to be there to survive Franco's regime. So they published there. So are they Spaniards or are they Latinos? You know, those questions I don't entertain. I let those big questions to be entertained by my faculty and students. This is what I buy books. And not just buying books, evaluating them for the degrees of scholarship, which we have, the criteria. Secondly, people laugh at me and they say, why do you look at the prices? I never look at the prices from the Colombian perspective. But if one vendor is offering a book, which is, let's say, in Colombian uh, currency is 20 US dollars. If that vendor is selling that book for, let's say, 200 dollars, look at the market, right? Vendors have to leave. Libreros have to leave. But with the set of other vendors giving you it for 120 dollars, then you have to have that comparative the intelligence. Because I'm a public university employee, I don't have a limited budget and no university in the world has a Harvard doesn't have, Princeton doesn't have, they have limitations. They have a lot of resources, much more than us, perhaps, as a public university, you know, compared to or with. But still, we are accountable for how we spend our monies. We have to stretch it. I don't know if you mind me asking, and I hope it's okay to ask, but you mentioned earlier that you were a displaced person. Would you mind talking about your backstory and how that influences? It's, it's, it's not that important because we're all displaced in certain way, all human beings. In a certain way, displaced in a sense, sometimes people are displaced by war, sometimes displaced by their poverty, sometimes by the choices people around them make, which we try to understand it as a fate. The choices other people make for you on which you don't have any control. But you realize afterwards, oh, that was a good choice. I ended up in the United States or I went to Russia or I went to Middle East or it was a terrible choice. I should not be, have been here. When I was a child, I wanted to study Arabic. But I couldn't study because of the religious sensitivities that existed in the society. There was no such program in the school where I studied. But behind my house where I lived, there was a big Islamic community and there were teachers and I thought all languages are written with Arabic script as a kid. Then I realized it's not true because Iranians use the same type of script with modification. Urdu is written with the script and I started to study secretly. Only my mother knew. When my father found out, he said, oh no, he's studying again. He's going to be an extremist. He was joking, but as a kid, you take it personally, right? So, okay, what should I study? So I started studying Russian. Because I was not allowed to study Arabic or Urdu. I started studying Russian because that was one language which was accessible to me. Soviet Union, despite being called an evil empire, it had certain advantages because they had the foreign propaganda presence in third world countries. Just like American Information Bureau or whatever they call it. English classes, they're very expensive. So I couldn't afford. As a loser, I went to where I can go. Russia. They have me charged like 50 cents for the whole year. Of course, they have their own, you know, 
agendas and sub-agendas to win the minds over for the Soviet type of thinking. I was kind of adapted, encouraged by one Russian teacher. She said, you have to go to Soviet to study. And for a kid who is young, 12, 13 years old, and you tell him, you come from a, a lower economic, socio-economic background where resources are limited when you have like eight people living in one room. Uh, the water comes only for 40 minutes a day and you don't have TV in the home, so you have to watch TV. The country did not have TV until 74, I believe. So we used to watch TV from uh, shops outside. So I said, okay, that's a good chance. Let me go to Russia. If they think it's a worker's paradise, then let me go and experience it. Now I think that I should have first come to America. It would have been better for me, career-wise. But, but you know, I cannot change the pulse. So I ended up in the Soviet Union and I realized they didn't have toilet paper, they didn't have sugar. And I said, how it can be worker's paradise? Outside, we were all quite zip-mouth, following the rules and norms, but there was a rebellion going on. So librarianship for me, coming to America, was reconnecting to that past. Because I could read Indian materials here in, in Berkeley Library. I could read Russian materials. The Spanish people who surrounded me came from Mexico, from Guatemala, from El Salvador. And they adopted me in the comunidad. I don't want to force you into displaying your trauma before... No, 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 there is no trauma. Yeah. It's just an experience. Traumas happen all the time, and there are people who are in worse situation, like the Ukrainian refugees displaced by aggression or special military operation of Russia, as they call it. They don't have homes. Look at Afghans displaced by our own activities overseas. The pragmatism and idealism about globalization gets decoupled with the political realities of a particular nation state. When our boys go to fight over there, lose their hands, trying to build Afghanistan, trying to do good things, but bad things come out of it. Right. And those veterans who come back home, it's not their fault. They're following orders. But then you wonder, our country is so divided ideologically that it makes me very sad that this nation has given so much hope to many, many people overseas. Really, when I was growing up, when I, when I was in the Soviet Union, I used to listen to Radio Free Europe. Why? Because they used to give... Accurate information about what's happening in the Soviet Union. So when Chernobyl happened, we heard it first. So I was surprised. I think our own authorities are like, oh, it's a minor accident. But in reality, it was a big cloud all the way to Sweden and Norway, I believe. And we found that out. So information is over. And as a librarian, we are the clearinghouse of information to a certain sense. We are the heart of the university and we are here to solve you know, the idea level ourselves. But I mean, like your own mission statement, like your own reason why you were there, the way you phrased it, where it's like you want to be able to give like the information that is out there. So speaking of information, let's talk about the at-risk Afghanistan web archive. Yeah. In early 2021, the U.S. government announced that it was withdrawing from Afghanistan on August 31st, earlier than the initial set date of September 11. And President Joe Biden declared that the 20-year occupation there was over. The declaration led to a power vacuum that was then filled by the Taliban. It also led to a chaotic, desperate, and at times deadly attempt by people to evacuate the country. So that was a big moment for me. Without going into the merits of our exiting Afghanistan, we know the cigar reports, we can Google them. They talked about levels of uh, inefficiencies, levels of corruption, lack of accountability. I was wondering, so much of taxpayers' money went into that operation, and there was corruption. 
obviously somehow Taliban was able to overwhelm local Afghan authorities. Why? Because they had a big civil war with the Soviet Union left. And they realized no point because we're going to be all killed if we start a fight against Taliban. So they said, United States will leave. And that's what happened. We left. We disengaged. I'm sure there's a lot of engagement going on behind the scenes. I don't know. And I don't want to know. However, when I saw the Taliban leaders were sitting in the presidential palace, I said, that means there will be a new reality. Uh, the poor and downtrodden cannot leave their country because they don't have resources. Intellectuals, including female intellectuals, might get into trouble because of the conservative interpretation of particular religions. Islam is not a monolith as we see it. Islam has a lot of undercurrents, a lot of different sects, a lot of different way of thinking. There's a lot of freedom in how we interpret Islamic law to a certain extent. Now, I think the government information, the information created by civil society, such as tweets, such as blogs, such as some radio station websites, will eventually change. There was no doubt that it will not change the only thing when it will change. And you know, first thing when government comes over, they try to take out everything the first government did. That has happened in our politics, for example. To this day, we have a lot of different inquiries going on. So I thought I should save that information. At least in the United States, that information is safe to a certain extent. But in Afghanistan, I don't know, I had one project going on, uh, Belarus protest. And at the same time, I said, okay, I should start the project. And I first started crawling like six websites. But then I said that if I don't have informed, let's say, a participant, because I don't know Pashto. I was studying Farsi at that time, so I could read Dari and I could figure it out in English. But I still did Afghan local specialists. So I started looking and I started contacting a couple of professors. They got interested. And at the same day, I wrote to my boss, Susan Edwards and Beg Dukui, both of them were copied, that I'm sorry, but I haven't started this project. But I thought I would be in a big trouble. And Susan said, oh, good that you started it. See, sometimes you have to go in a bureaucratic organization, and I'm not saying Berkeley is bureaucratic, but you know how libraries work. They have their own levels of forms to fill out for all sorts of rights. Intellectual property, clearance, whatever they call it, informed consent. But sometimes you don't have time. I just took that decision on me, and I am to be blamed if something was wrong. I let them know that I'm doing this. So Susan and Beth understood that this was an urgent I thing. Sunday or... morning. Yeah, I wrote to them Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. I ordered it to reply on the, did you have enough space? Because it's expensive. Someone has to pay for it. And then we decided to have, I think, about 65 to 69 sites we called and saved a lot of PDF files. But it's still a peanut, you know. But at least we have some access to what that government was about. Even if it was corrupt, some people call it. There was a civil society emerging in Kabul in certain urban centers where female police officers were there, female judges were there, female students would go to school and get education. There was some progress made, despite the fact that the promise made to Afghan girls was broken by Taliban, right? They were all sent home. So just imagine the amount of social pressure because of gender. And we are not living in the Stone Age. Even the Prophet's time, this never happened. In the Prophet's time, it never happened that women and female were treated the way sometimes they get treated now in some parts of the world. So I'm looking at it from an American perspective because I'm living here 30 years. Might be the people in Afghanistan might be feeling differently. I don't know. I've not been there. So. 
So one thing I noticed is that there's been also this history of projects trying to archive government websites after a government political head that people have concerns about. Like, I remember there was this attempt to web archive um, sites after Bolsonaro in Brazil. I think there may have been a separate one in Hungary after Viktor Orban. How do you feel about this need of a group of independent library workers and academics having to do the archiving of websites after this kind of event happens. See, Library of Congress had uh, one time, I think, announced that we will capture every tweet. Wow, what a lofty goal, right? After all, this Library of Congress, numero uno. There's no other library par excellence for many of us who think that it's like reaching heaven. Maybe it's a heaven, I don't know. Uh, so I captured Bolsonaro tweets. And I was told that there is no space. Budget was limited. So sometimes resources matter. So you need to be thinking of a few questions here. One question is, if you are going to do such project, why your institution? Second, is it a unique enough project? Now, you see Ukraine has happening. All of us are having Ukrainian websites. When Iraq war was happening, how many of us did archive Iraqi websites? Think about this. So, there are certain dynamics, and let's say a minority person, which I am always told that I am a minority, sometimes you get reminded because of your accent, because of your last name. Nobody overtly does it, but overtly you feel it. Like questions that you get sometimes. Like, why are you involved in this project? I, I thought about that too with the announcement of Sucho, the Ukrainian archiving project, the big one that has hundreds of people, almost a thousand people working on it at the same time. The Cameroonian websites, the Cameroonian government websites, like there is a conflict going on that not many people know about until recently with the announcement of Cameroonians who live in the U.S. getting TPS. But even then, people still don't know that there is a separatist conflict that has caused many people to be displaced, especially in northern Cameroon in the Anglophone region. People have lost access to electricity and the Internet and whatnot. People have died. But not many people know about it, and there's really no effort that I've seen on this kind of scale. See, this is the parochial nature. This is what kind of makes me very sad. Once again, nobody's equating the loss of life in Ukraine. Ukraine is important. I'm not saying it's not important that every nation state should have a right to change their future path in a peaceful way. They can join whatever they join. But with the same token, uh, we are the people who lead the world. We consider ourselves so-called nation builders. Because the United States have experience in building nation in Europe. After the Marshall Plan, we started trying to rebuild Iraq. But Iraq didn't have a lot of choices in the beginning. So, and as an American, I'm speaking. And I'm not representing any particular party or ideology. When we talk about equity, talk it cheap. How many times African Americans have been shot at, killed, put in the jail? Every time in the United States, gun violence happens. And I don't represent NRA or I don't represent Democrats here. All I'm saying is that I have a rational thought. Every time we get together, oh, poor kids died. Oh my God, oh, we cried. And these things repeat over and over and over. And then you start wondering what is going on here. What is your role? We are sometimes very hypocritical. And that's the name of the game, foreign policy. There are all the sinners, just the policy. I will say one thing to give benefit to all this, though is that having so many people work on web archiving, it's giving more of a human face 
to the creation of the information that we get on the internet. People are realizing for the Ukrainian website that there are people behind it that maintain not just the Ukrainian website, but like any infrastructure or open source resource that a lot of Americans use. In Afghanistan, a lot of the information that comes out, there is a person behind that. I was even just thinking about that with a guide on using a certain software for podcasting. He's a Ukrainian. I'm doing the same project here. I'm, I have about two terabytes of data archived from Ukraine. But with the same token, when I archive Ukrainian websites, I'm archiving some of the opposition Russian websites. Because okay. Russia is not a monolithic country. I don't believe in the collective punishment. Although the, the goal of the collective punishment of these 4,000 plus sanctions on Russia seems to be bringing down Putin regime rather than helping Russians. But Russians are screwed in their own country on certain level. Nobody talks about it. You know, one size is not fits all. It's a... The Gestalt is different. So there's a memorial. It's a Russian NGO, which was declared a foreign agent by current Russian government. And they are all Russians. There's a, a NGO, which is called, I think, Mothers of Soldiers or something like that. And I'm working their websites because their kids are going to Ukraine to fight. Some of them were transported there against their wish by forcing them to sign this contract. And they're dying in numbers. Since the Russian government's data is not verifiable or they have their own restrictions on because of the special nature of the military operation, everything is classified. So Ukrainians, when they find uh, a dead Russian soldier, they photograph him. And then they use uh, artificial intelligence and do reverse image search to find him on the social media, that person. Once they find they verify the information, they call the family using mobile phones in Russia to tell their mothers, your son was in Ukraine. This is his ID. So parents know that his or her child has either perished or is in Ukrainian uh, captivity. And you're archiving that? I'm archiving some of those pictures. Some of them are quite graphic, so they are not public yet because that's very traumatic. Not everybody can appreciate. It's, it's, it's a bad sight, right? How do you balance... Being able to do the work like that without causing more, for lack of a better term, traumatic experience for you. Well, there's a personal grief you all feel. There would have been a better solution using diplomatic means. I'm not trying to justify what it's war, but you understand what happened. When the globalized world, when there's one leader, not everybody perceived that particular nation state as a leader, but they perceived them as either threat to their way of life, their way of thinking. Justified or not justified, that's a different story. But not everybody wants to follow American model. That's what is telling us. So it's very strange for me. It takes a lot of toll on me, emotional toll. But somebody has to do the job. Somebody has to preserve those snippets of soldiers who perhaps didn't have idea, they before yesterday, that they were going to fight in Ukraine. But ended up in Ukraine. Got caught. Got killed. See, how the Ukrainians are finding where the Russian troops are. They don't have their satellites, so somebody is giving them that information. Somebody is providing arms to them to fight that war. And the lives are being lost. How does the results of the ROR project look, and what do you expect to see from the archiving of the Ukrainian and Russian websites that you're working on now? Do you see any relation between the two? Well, you can always find correlation between different entities, but that's not the point. These projects are slightly different. The realities are different. The Ukrainian war is still going on, despite the fact that people say, well, 
they are not progressing, they are not doing this. There are certain gains and certain losses. So at the end of the day, this repository is a testimony of what was happening from Russian side as well as from the Ukrainians. In this war, I don't think there are winners or losers. To be fair, Russia was the aggressor in this war. They crossed the border of Ukraine. Until 2014, when they took the Crimea, I have met many Ukrainians who spoke Russian, who sang Russian songs. They realized their sense of commonality, of the cultural experiences of the Soviet times, of Eastern Slavic war. How would you define it? Now, I believe that Putin has doing everything to build a nation which he thought he was going to conquer. He has helped more to the Ukrainian nation state to be more stronger than it was before. But that's just my naive interpretation of a librarian's way of looking at lies. So what I'm saying is that I wish human beings could be colorblind. I wish human beings could look at the tragedy that it affects everybody. Like COVID has affected all over the world. What is happening in the, in the Cameroon should have the same priority. I cannot speak for the rest of the country, it's not my place. But I'd rather have archives preserved certain sites than not to have it. So imagine that a new library worker is listening to this, who's interested in area studies, and has heard of all your work, and has heard of all the efforts that you're putting in, and also the toll that it takes. What would you say to that library worker or student who wants to go into area studies after hearing this? What advice, what suggestions, what would you say to them? Be flexible, be open, allow experiences to enrich you. There are going to be sometimes positive experiences, sometimes going to be negative experiences in life when you work in the libraries. Remember that every libraries have four P's. There are policies. There are procedures, there are people, and the last one, which is very less important for me, is politics. So every organization in the world, whether it's White House or Kremlin, will have this mix of this type of metrics. So what is important for you is like, sometimes when I joined this profession, there were some librarians who said, oh, you're a loser, you're joining this profession. And they're librarians, and they're making six-figure salaries, and they were telling me, and I was like, I'm a library student and I was making $8 an hour, $8.25 in those times. And why they are so complaining when their lives have $100,000 in salaries in some cases. So try to do it. Have independent critical thinking and don't put people on pedestals. So I know you had a lot there, but I want to point out that you said that there were librarians with six-figure incomes. <laughs> Well, go and look up the salary databases of public music libraries. <laughs> I want to talk to these people. <laughs> so that was in 2001, 2002, those times. And then there are city administrators who make six figures in income, and then there are workers in full service work for five fifteen dollars living wage. So I'm not trying to be socialist here. I'm just a librarian politically not affiliated with any party. <laughs> no ideology here. I'm just saying that look at the data. No, I think that's fair. I think it's fair that, you know, I wish for another discussion that we talk about the disparities. Yeah, and, like and, the assistants who help me, who, who make our libraries possible, student workers, cheap labor fodder for the university, don't want to pay the benefits to them. I was like, oh, we appreciate it. We give them awards. Why did you give the property? You need pages. 
Yeah, give them wages, give them benefits, give them... Which is wrong. No, 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 you cannot go there, man. You are flying at 2,000 feet and those people are flying at 20,000 feet, they will crush you. They are B2, B2 bombers and you are just an old Cessna. You, you cannot trust. So this type of conversations happen within libraries. And that happened to me. And, and what I said to young students is uh, our future librarians is it's worth it. No matter if it's how bad it might get for me, it was worth the job. Otherwise, I don't know where I will be working in the Home Depot with broken back if I listen to people's advice and stay there. So just do what your mind pleases. And live your day without hurting anybody in life. As much as you don't get up every morning, I say, whatever it is, may the force be with you or whatever they call it in American Star Wars, I don't know. <laughs> live long and prosper or something come under Cisco finding Kardashians. I cannot do that, Mr. Spock, <laughs> without emotions. So all I'm saying is the diversity and strength of Americans. It's diversity. It's allowing us to be critical of self, mockery. This is what I like about our country. United States is the place for me, despite all the funny ideas I have said before. I don't want to be anywhere else but in this country. And, and I'm proud to be an American librarian now. Somebody back home in India told me, please, it's a women's job. They told my father, and my father was holding his head. He said, uh, is it true? And I said, no, you don't know anything about my job. Why are you saying it's a woman's job? Those gender biases and gender stereotypes that in the traditional society are no longer true. Thank you so much. Take it easy. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guests, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. I wrote that the last thing.